Hello and welcome to Late To It, I'm Naomi Frisbee. I'm Kirsty Dill. And this is the podcast about reading books at the right time. Kirsty, what have you been reading on time this week? Uh, I'll tell you what I've read twice. Um, what now? <laughs> I know, I know, this never happens. I'm not a, I'm not a habitual re-reader or indeed re-listener, which is what this is. But I have listened twice since we last spoke to the audiobook of The Storyteller by Dave Broll. Now, that's a book that needs no help in sales. It's been number one in the bestseller charts and it's Dave Grohl. Um, what more do you need to know? But uh, I'm here to tell you that it is wonderful and very much up to the hype. And I would go further than that and go, I'm particularly glad that I listened to it on the audiobook. Um, I think it would have been wonderful to read it in, in print, but... Dave Grohl reading it and we've spoken before about celebrities reading their own mm. um sort of memoirs autobiographies and it's great and Dave Grohl is just such wonderful company like I know you kind of know he's going to be because he is the nicest man in rock as we know um but he's just a joy to listen to and I think that's why I've listened to it twice there was once that I was uh, listing as I normally listen to audiobooks, sort of just going about my business, having it on, you know, as other people have a radio on, I suppose I have audiobooks, listen to audiobooks. Um, and then recently I was doing a long drive um, and I listened to it on that as well, because it was just, just genuinely entertaining and nice to listen to. And what I really like about it is it isn't a kind of A to B memoir of I was born and then I did this and then I did this and then I did this. I mean, it is broadly linear in terms of, you know, it's not kind of jumping about his life particularly, but it's not, you know, it's just as the title would suggest, it is stories from his life. So, you know, he talks about the first time he played in public, you know, right at the start where him and his mum, who have this gorgeous relationship, um, go to this jazz club and, he's a teenager and she's like you know you know for my birthday would you get up and play and he's like oh holy crap I can't I can't keep up with these jazz guys you know he's like 15 or whatever and various bits through his um you know his first bands you know when he joined Scream and then how he came to join Nirvana and a you know a handful of Nirvana stories um onwards through the formation of the Foo Fighters and then there's like a section it's essentially Dave's celebrity stories, which is just great because he just sounds like a kid in a sweet shop, basically. Going, and then Paul McCartney came to my house and I saw him play piano with my daughter and I had this moment. Um, you know, it's just he's so kind of his his enthusiasm for life and music. And, you know, it's I feel like you hear a lot of celebrity types whether that's musicians artists writers you know people at the top of their creative field being kind of faux modest about you know I never forget where I came from like with listening to Dave Grohl you kind of you actually believe it you, you actually do believe that he's sitting there pinching himself going shit it's Lemmy um <laughs> you know it's uh it's really lovely there are lots of great stories I love listening to him talk about his family, the way he talks about his mum and his wife and his three daughters is, is just gorgeous. And um, as a particular niche reference um, for Foo Fighters fans, he does address Fresh Pots, uh, the infamous Fresh Pots video, which me and um, I shall name check my colleague Sophie here, have been known to quote each other in the work kitchen. Um, <laughs> So yes, 
uh, yeah, story of his caffeine overdose is, you know, the, the most rock and roll overdose is when he was taking 4,000 milligrams of caffeine a day through about seven pots of coffee. And his doctor was like, don't do that. <laughs> you need to not do that now. <laughs> anyway, yes. So Dave Grohl, audiobook, wonderful. Yes, I can second that recommendation because I am halfway through it. Now I'm not notorious for um, getting halfway through audiobooks and then abandoning for ages and then coming back to them. So I've got halfway, because it was my book during Manchester Literature Festival because I was commuting to um, Manchester and back, so it meant that I was listening to it as I was, as I was walking to the station. Um, and obviously I'm not, I tend to listen to audiobooks when I'm walking, so my new thing at the minute is to get out walking every day, so that's my audiobook time back. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm partway through, and I mean, I love him anyway, I've loved him for years. <laughs> and it's the only audiobook I've ever pre-ordered because yeah. like we said like that's my thing is that I love listening to audiobooks that are read by the celebrities it's a bit it's a bit of extra voyeurism as far as I'm concerned yeah and yeah, yeah I, I think there's, there's a real there, there seems to be a real boom in audiobooks at the moment and I think from what I can see on the inside as it were there's a real um, sort of appetite for kind of additional content which is a terrible phrase but you know for instance this book Dave Grohl's book has after the end credits has an extra chapter and I think I'm always dubious of you know how sometimes you see like special editions in bookshops that have got you know an extra chapter like the director's cut and that always really annoys me because I'm just like well if you cut it then if it wasn't good enough to be in the novel then why are you giving it to us as a bonus? Like, here's a bit I chucked in the bin, you know, <laughs> thank you. That's like, the only reason we edit bits out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, I know. That's always the feeling I get is like, I don't, I, I'm not bothered about delete. I've never been one into deleted scenes. Do you know what I mean? But um, with this, it's just like, it kind of made me think of a hidden track at the end of a CD, you know, which, you know, you can't do on Spotify or anything like that on streaming platforms. You can't have like, a three hour long track for a 30 second bit that's stuck at the end like we used to play our cds and leave you know oh the last track is actually an hour long that must mean there's a hidden bit um so i i liked it i liked it for that sorry as you were I was, you, you carry on i just i was just on a dave Grohl um love bombing basically i love dave Grohl. same same there's a great actually i must tell you this story from it which is near the end, so I'm going to spoil this for you. Um, but it's not really a spoiler because it's, you know, it's his life. Uh, now, this this is an environmentally shocking, but as a father, very beautiful, in that he promised he would take his daughters to the daddy-daughter dance and then realised he was booked to play in Perth, Australia. <laughs> and so they moved the Perth gig by two days... He came off stage in like Adelaide, I can't remember it was, but somewhere else, let's say Adelaide, somewhere else in Australia, got on a plane, flew to Sydney like on a private plane, and then got a, a flight um, from Sydney to Los Angeles, landed, took his daughters to the daddy-daughter dance, left, had to leave halfway through, but they were like, they were just chuffed that he'd been there. So they were like, see you later, dad. Um, went back to the airport got on a plane, flew back to Australia and um, went straight from the airport to the next gig. Oh. I know. 
let's not think of the carbon footprint let's just enjoy the <laughs> fact that he flew like 30 hours in total to take his daughters to the daddy daughter dance this is going to sound weird but listening to it i can't decide whether i'm most jealous of his mummy's wife or his kids i know just all of them <laughs> although although like all credit to his mum she's raised she, she was a single parent she's raised an amazing kid yeah completely she absolutely has what have you been reading nothing like dave Grohl. <laughs> <laughs> this is like about as far away from that as you can get i have been reading absorbed by kylie whitehead which is the first book to come out on the new ruins imprint which is a collaboration between influx press and dead ink books and you'll know if you're a fan of this to imprints which i know you are and as am i that this is this was going to be good and it's <laughs> it's we're recording this not long after halloween so this was my halloween this is my seasonal read um, <laughs> it's it's about this woman she's called allison and while she's having sex with her boyfriend owen in a hotel room after a party on new year's eve she absorbs him into her body <laughs> As one does. <laughs> As one does. It's such a brilliant premise. And what I loved most was I really thought this was going to go down a gender thing of, mm. you know, she's absorbed and she now becomes this other person who's like, acts differently because she's absorbed a man. Um, and that's not what happens. It's about um, fear of abandonment. It's about insecurity. It's about childhood trauma although the, tra- the trauma she experienced as a child I shouldn't laugh but the trauma she experienced <laughs> as a child is not the sort of trauma that like pretty much anyone else is ever going to experience that's all I'm going to say yeah. about it otherwise okay. um, and it doesn't go into it in too much detail because she doesn't actually know that much about what happened but she was adopted when she was three was the result of that and she can't remember she doesn't know her birth parents she can't remember um, much about what came before but yeah so so what happens after that obviously she sort of tries to, to adjust to the situation but obviously there's some there's some issues with absorbing your boyfriend and people wanting to know where he is and also things start happening in her flats that are a bit weird and I don't really want to say much more than that because I feel like I'd give too much away but it's really brilliant I thought like the psychology of it the way that she felt her reasons for doing it I mean even though she didn't like obviously she didn't plan to absorb him it happens because <laughs> He does plan to absorb their boyfriend. Yeah. But, yeah, the psychology of it made sense. It was really well done, I think. And, yeah, like I said, I was was really pleased that it wasn't a gender thing. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of that about at the minute. And this was something more interesting than that. Anyway, I raced through it, couldn't put it down. It sounds great. And I do have a copy, thanks to you, um, for sending me your spare copy. Thank you very much. Thanks to Jordan Taylor-Jones, who sent me two. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jordan, for sending Naomi two, because now I have one. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It's, it's one of my... It's, one of, it's, it's in my pile of books to read as soon as I get the chance, rather than just my general pile. Mm. Does that make sense? I've got one of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As you were talking, it kind of put me in mind, it made it sound like a cross between Kafka and Morven Caller. <laughs> I've not read Morven Caller. Oh, you need to read Morven Caller. You would love Morven Caller. I have got a copy. It's just one of those things that's sat on my shelf for ages. Um, 
is it like half crazy? Do you know what? I'll tell you what I was thinking about um, while I was talking about it, actually. I went to see Leonie Ross on Saturday at mm. Off the Shelf being interviewed by Desiree Reynolds. And one of the things they were talking about was magic realism and what it is and what it does. And one of the things they only talked about was the way that magical realism is, it's just part of life. You know, this whole idea that it's something different. She's like, we all have these stories that we tell. We all have like, you know, we talk about ghosts or we talk about mm-hmm. our dreams or we talk about things that have happened that like, we can't explain, but we still believe them or whatever. And mm-hmm. it reminded me of that actually. And that's, I think that's what I was saying about it being, it felt psychologically right. You know, this yeah. like, you know, you can joke about she absorbs a boyfriend as, as you do, but also it didn't feel like some bollocks that she'd made up. Do you know what I mean? It felt yeah. like, yeah, this could happen because actually she's the sort of person who's that insecure. She tries to possess him. So she does in, in a particular way. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So sorry, I just went off on a off no. <laughs> Did not apologize. It's, it sounds really good and I do very much want to get to it. Um now should we let's there's no appropriate place to segue into our two books this week because they're actually quite different, they're very different to both <laughs> the books we've just been talking about. Um so let's just launch into the fact that this week we are talking about uh two, I mean you could call them crime novels in a sense in that they are both novels in which crime occurs but neither of them are straightforwardly whodunits or why done it or um you know formulaic in that sense uh, for good and bad i would say uh, the two books are girl waits with gun uh, by amy stewart which was published by scribe in should have checked this beforehand, in 2016, and Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips, which in the UK is published by Scribner in 2019. Um, should we start with the Amy Stewart? Hmm. Let's right. start with the Amy Stewart, which I have to say, I had an absolute blast reading. It's such a fun book. I said on Twitter, in fact, that it was tremendous fun, and I stand by that. It was a genuinely entertaining book. Uh, It is the first book in a series of novels, I think seven novels, of which five are available in the UK. I'm sure there are ways to get six and seven in the UK, but we couldn't possibly condone that. Um, (laughs) Which are historical novels. Um, They are set, or this one is set in uh, 1914. Where am I getting that from? Because in Archduke Franz Ferdinand has just been assassinated. And also the first line said it started in the summer of 1914, so I didn't just pluck it completely from thin air, um, in which Constance Cop and her two sisters um, are in a automobile accident whereby an automobile uh, crashes into their horse-drawn buggy um, and they remonstrate with the driver who turns out to be a wealthy silk factory owner, silk dyer factory owner. Uh, called Henry Kaufman um, and being uh, rather self-sufficient and feisty young ladies um, they try and get the money back the the expensive $50 to get back to fix their buggy and Henry Kaufman does not want to pay and by you know suddenly we've got um, shootings we've got bricks held through windows we've got 
all sorts of stuff going on and it turns into a bit of a crime caper i would i would say um but it's more than that as well isn't it it is i just before i say some more about it i just want to say how much i was enjoying you saying automobile automobile <laughs> well that's what they could they call it all the way through because it is it's 1914 so automobiles are not terribly um not terribly common are they they uh, yeah but I was enjoying that. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I don't know what I want to say about it now, Kirsty. I really enjoyed it too. I thought it was great. I thought it should be a TV series. Yes, get it on Netflix. Yes, I would definitely watch it if, if it was made into um, yeah, TV. Um, what do you, want to, you know why you talk about it then? What I was thinking actually when, when you were talking about Kaufman, I was like, he's a gangster. I don't know if I watched too many Scorsese films, but I was like... It's organised crime, essentially. Yeah, under yeah. a different name. It absolutely is. It's just he's a he's a nasty piece of work who's in with a load of gangsters, and they there's threatening and extortion and kidnapping and all sorts going on. Such romps. <laughs> Such romps. It is a romp, though. We were talking a bit about this before we started recording, and I said, "Did this come out a few years later?" As in. Um, you know, I can't remember what year it was, 2018. Time's gone elastic, hasn't it, since this pandemic happened. But mm -hmm. if it had been published a couple of years later, it would have been an uplate novel. <laughs> yeah. So it's one of those where it's like, it's all cheery and rompy and la 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 la, but there's some very dark issues being talked about. There's, you know, there's extortion. They come around the house and they ransack it. Kaufman, the... Um, the factory that he runs, it's a family factory. They own some of the accommodation that people live in. They set fire to one of them because they want to get rid of someone. Um, a kid gets kidnapped. Well, it's Kaufman's own kid is kidnapped and disappeared. And is and the mum is looking for it, which Constance gets involved with. Uh, what else do we have? Um, pregnant, unmarried women. Gasp. <laughs> How dare. Uh, we've got blackmail. Yes. Oh, state of prisons. There's a bit about, you know, how terrible um, different prisons are and which becomes a bit of a plot thing right towards the end. So I'll not say too much about that, but it seemed to me like it was verging on the start of something about reform and whether that comes later in the series mm. would be interesting to find out, I think. I think one of the interesting things about this book is it is partially based on fact. Um, mm. The Constance Cop did exist, as did Norma Cop and um, Florette as well. Um, and there's a, there's a long historical note at the back where, you know, Amy Stewart says, you know, this is a work of historical fiction based on real events and real people. My task as a writer was to take the public record, piece together from newspaper articles, genealogical records, court documents and other sources and invent the rest of the story. Um, all the major events described in the novel actually happened with a few notable exceptions. And then she goes on to describe some of those, some of those exceptions. A lot of it is lifted from newspaper articles and newspaper, newspapers are actually a really important part of the book. I mean, they're, they're, my favorite character, brilliant as, as Constance, the main character is, my favorite character in the book is actually her slightly younger sister, Norma who despite being about four years younger than Constance acts about 20 years older um, <laughs> and is obsessed with all she cares about are newspapers and pigeons and um, fair play to her 
um they live the three of them live out in this their, their mother has died they live out in this remote farmhouse in the middle of nowhere um and Norma's just tending to her pigeons but what she does is she gets she has all the newspapers every day and she cuts out sort of cautionary headlines and cautionary stories and when she's taking her pigeons out as she does every day and getting them to fly home she uh rolls these uh cautionary stories up and puts them in their little anklet ankle bracelet thingy um and they act <laughs> we were laughing about this earlier a note i made myself uh while i was reading this book is pigeons as greek chorus um so at just at opposite times in in the novel you know a pigeon will fly in with you know a headline saying something very similar to what is going on in the, in the cop sisters lives you know as a kind of warning of what is about to happen you know these portents portents carried by pigeon um which i just thought was an absolute joy to be honest um I just I need to read this description of Norma that comes right at the beginning of the book, um, which is just it's very indicative of the kind of dryness and sort of wryness of the book. Although mother hated the birds and wouldn't go near the pigeon loft, she had encouraged Norma's interest in them, believing that girls should have hobbies and kept them entertained and close them home, close to home. She made no secret of the fact that she hoped raising baby birds would encourage a mothering instinct in Norma that would lead her to marriage and children. Exactly how Norma would find a husband living out in the countryside as we did was never explained, and Mother seemed oblivious to the fact that Norma was so, uh, so opinionated, so argumentative, and so set in her ways that no man would ever dare, dare take up with her. It didn't help that Norma had all the girlish charm of a boulder and had never shown the slightest interest in romantic love or child-rearing. Mother had been right that pigeons made a good pastime, but Norma was in no danger of becoming engaged as a result. Um, She's just, I bloody love Norma. I kind of want to hang out with her and talk about pigeons. I'm convinced that Norma's actually a Northern English bisexual. <laughs> I think you are absolutely right. Yep. yep. <laughs> I was yeah. like, that's I like her so much. Get her over here. She's in the wrong place. Yeah, absolutely. I've just found it. I've just found my note, which I, I will hold up, which you can't see because it's a podcast. And in fact, my light's in the way pigeons are a greek chorus uh, it said i must have dozed off around sunrise i'd been dreaming about a flock of messenger pigeons circling the roof in the early gray light before dawn carrying slips of paper in their beaks and dropping them down on us chicken thieves send kidnapping threats arrived first then police on lookout for brother's hunting rifle florette caught one in the air and held it out to me sisters on war footing it read <laughs> yeah i really enjoyed that bit as well i thought they were great the little the little headlines that pop up yeah um i think what's interesting about oh god interesting <laughs> what you're saying as well is how well drawn the minor characters are because mm. i found like i found the story compelling but actually constance didn't interest me that much she felt a bit like a vehicle for the plot at some point yeah whereas norm was quite well-rounded florette as well has got her own little thing going on and also Marion Garfinkel who doesn't appear that much but who is Henry's sister who's married hence the different surname um, and she has counselled her dad against giving the factory to Henry because he's fucking useless 
Um, that's a technical term. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, but becomes one of those women who ends up doing the dirty work. Mm. So she's she's involved in some quite salubrious, anti-feminist, horrible, like patriarchal bullshit because she feels like it's the right thing to do to kind of protect Henry and the family business or not so much Henry but the fact that like he's part of the unit I guess mm. and I found her a really interesting character like I said even though she doesn't she's not there that much because I'm a bit I'm always like that with you know women who are doing a patriarchy's job for yeah. <laughs> what are you up to love but I thought she made quite an impression for someone who probably has about two pages in the entire book when it, if you put it together no I, I completely agree with that she she turns up at at kind of key points and does in the end we discover have quite a key role to play in in sort of one of the subplots to the book um but you're right and it's it made me think as we were talking about this earlier one of the things actually I love about this book is it's all the women are just incredibly capable now that capability can be used for good or bad but basically there are the men in this book, good, bad, or indifferent, are all absolutely useless. <laughs> and whichever way you want to look at it, women are going in and cleaning up their messes for them. Now, some of those messes are, as you say, patriarchal bollocks. Um, and actually, Marion therefore is, you know, does does one particular thing that's that's completely abhorrent and. Grim, really grim, but in the name of just sorting out her brother's mess. The sisters, the three sisters who live by themselves um, in the, the, the farmhouse. I mean, the whole book, it, the, the whole plot is them sorting out this mess caused by same feckless man. But even the male, the male characters that are good, you know, good people. So we're talking, I'm thinking particularly of um, their brother, who is married and lives in the town, is desperately wants to take care of them. You know, since their mother died and the father's not, you never find out where the father's gone. The father's long since disappeared. Um, he he kind of feels this very much this old fashioned responsibility towards them and feels that he has a duty to protect these three helpless women who are out in the middle of nowhere, despite the fact that they can all carry a gun, um, you know, and are actually you know sorting out all sorts of stuff going on um and also the sheriff who is i i mean a, a character that i really liked he's a good person who is very much on the sister's side has been desperately trying to catch henry kaufman for various reasons for many years um and has never managed to do it ultimately i mean i don't i don't feel like it's a massive spoiler to say that henry does get his comeuppance at the end of the book mm. because the ending sort of isn't the important bit in a way that's you know, it's, the, the book does exactly what you're expecting it to do in that sense um but the sheriff himself says to Constance you solved this case you know this 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 was your work this was a you know a guy that been trying to catch for a long time and it was because of her that ultimately he got he, he got what was coming to him so it's um yeah pigeon fancying women sorting out everyone else's mess if that doesn't make you want to go and buy it immediately i'm afraid there's no hope for you 
This is true. I agree with you on that front. Um, two things I was thinking about there. One that I know he says to her she solves it, but really I think what she I think what she does is cleverer than that. She comes mm. up with a way to get somebody to talk, which is really yeah. well done, which is really thoughtful and smart. And yeah, and is <laughs> I mean not not obvious when you're reading it because you'd need to know she's got context that you don't have as a read. Well, you kind of you're given it by the sheriff, but he hasn't put it together and she does in such a brilliant way. And and there's a really funny bit actually when it, it involves her going to speak to one of Kaufman's henchmen. And there's a really funny bit where the, the sheriff basically goes, Are You scared? And she's like, No, <laughs> no, she goes. <laughs> it's brilliant. because uh, she's been quite like ballsy to that point. And then that's a bit when she's like, Oh shit, I've actually got to go through with the thing that I've come up with. Um, and the other thing was the brother, the brother did my edit mostly mm. because I felt like he was living in a Jane Austen novel. I have yeah. sisters and I must take them in and marry them off. And he just like, sure up, mate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But actually, going back to what you just said about that constant sort of showing her, that's what I think made the character more rounded. Um than she might otherwise have been because actually you did see a bit of that vulnerability you know at various points through the bed it's all told in the first person from Constance's point of view but yes yeah, she does these incredibly ballsy things but you do see that she's scared like at various points you know you do see that she, what she's nervous about and what she worries about and there's there's a kind of background story which I won't sort of discuss the plot points of, but various details of of this backstory come come out throughout the book and actually shows a very different side to her and her relationship with one of her sisters in particular that it shows a real vulnerability and um, softer more protective side of her than just this sort of gung-ho yes I'll carry a revolver in my pocketbook um <laughs> teach me to drive a car it's fine uh and I liked the fact that there was both it wasn't just all kind of all just bluster and and you know um adventuring there was actually more than one facet to her which I feel like in in these sorts of novels sometimes it can be quite easy for characters to become very 2d and while I agree that Norma and, and Floretta may be more well-rounded again than Constance, I felt like there was a lot, there was a lot more to her than you might expect from a novel like this. Yeah, and I think the other bit where she's vulnerable, and I am gonna spoiler this a bit because it does come towards the end, but she goes for a job that she really thinks she's gonna get because she's perfect for, and they turn her away basically because she's too tall. <laughs> and yeah. she's too obvious and and she's gutted and and that's like really interesting to see as well that way she, you know and, and the fact that she's had to go out and get a job because they haven't got enough income from what her mum's left so they know they've got to yeah. do something or you know Norma is going to get married off to, <laughs> to someone her brother picks <laughs> so yeah yeah but like I said tv series now yeah thank you there is, there, as I said, this is the beginning of a series of books and I will certainly be looking to read more of them. I, I, if only to find out what happens to Norma and the Pigeons. <laughs> she moves to Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> My prediction. Yeah, by book seven, I want her in Manchester. Definitely. <laughs> right, Disappearing Earth then, which 
according to the cover, was a National Book Award finalist 2019. So I have some words for the judges, but we'll come back to that. So <laughs> this is about two sisters who are abducted. I've said that in quite a jaunty voice, which, um, which was not the intention. And now a kidnapping. Kidnapping, <laughs> <laughs> excited. So yeah. the two young girls are kidnapped um, on a summer's day. Um, there is one witness, the kidnapped by a man, we know that we watch him kidnap them at the beginning. So he claims to have a, a dodgy ankle and they help him back to his car. And then next thing they know, they're in the car and um, having the phones taken off them. And then what happens after that is it um, goes through different characters. So it doesn't stick with the girls or the person who's kidnapped him or it doesn't just revert to the mother we don't meet her till much later on it goes through different people in the community who have some connection sometimes tenuous sometimes stronger to these two girls but also to another um, young woman who disappeared called Lilia who is um, of the community it's set in a um, peninsula I Right, set in a peninsula in Russia, which is a bit of an odd setting, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, yes, and that's what's happened. That's what happens, and I'm just going to say straight out the straight out of the um, whatever. What's the word? Trap. That's what Trap. I mean. Yeah. It. Whatever. Whatever this is, that I found it really boring. <laughs> <laughs> the contrast between Girl Waits with a Gun, which was really exciting, and I kept wanting to read. And this, which I had to force myself to finish, I'm afraid. So let's start there, Kirsty Dorsey, you picked it. <laughs> I picked it. I just, I, I did a shocker. <laughs> um, yes, I very much agree with you. And it's not that she's a bad writer. She's not a bad writer at sentence level. Like she can write, she knows how to put a sentence together beautifully. Um, and I think actually, probably the opening chapter where the girl where you see the two sisters going about their day you get a little bit of their background and then you see the kidnapping and of course you because the girls are six and eight they're really young um and you realize as soon as this guy approaches them with his shiny car going oh I've got a sore leg could you give me a hand back to my car and oh why don't I drive you home like you can see coming a mile off what's going to happen and you're kind of screaming at them going don't get in the car um I thought that in a way actually was the best chapter in the book it's unfortunate it's the first one um but so it, it it's definitely not the the quality of the writing it I felt like it was less than the sum of its parts essentially um and actually just to talk about the set I mean there, there's various things to talk about but actually the setting is one of my biggest issues with the book. Now it's set in Kamchatka, which is a Siberian uh, peninsula, far east um, of Russia, um, sort of right over the very, very far east of, of, of the country. It's a very remote region. It is at times cut off. Uh, it, the author lived there for two years, which is why she's obviously chosen this setting. Um, and in fact, she said in an interview I read subsequently that she saw the area as essentially a large lock, locked room mystery, which I thought was a very odd statement 
if I'm being perfectly honest, um, because it's a very large peninsula, sort of the very, it's the wilderness. It feels like the very opposite of a locked room. It's a vast open space. Um, but my, my issue mainly is the setting adds absolutely nothing to the book. You know, you could lift this book wholesale and other than the kind of Russian names and patronymics and so on, you could stick it in a rural town in Ohio and it would be exactly the same story. Like it's, there is, it, it felt like a totally unnecessary thing. Um, and I was trying to kind of work out why that bothered me so much. And then I was looking, after I finished reading it earlier today, I was looking at some of the reviews and um, Sarah Moss, who we know and love, uh, actually reviewed it for The Guardian back in 2019 when it came out. And I wrote down this quote from the review because it, it, it sort of summed up to me exactly what my issue was, was this is a novel as much about the way infrastructure fails women as about the quest for the lost girls. But I wondered increasingly if Phillips was writing about the wrong infrastructure and the wrong girls. Mm. Um, which is not to say there are not good points made in it. You know, there are points being made about the, the amount of media coverage that is given to two young white girls who go missing versus um, the sort of indigenous, a girl from the indigenous community who goes missing three years prior and there's been absolutely no attention, you know, and that is absolutely a valid point. But that point could also have been made in an American context or a British context or, a, you know, it didn't have to be made in a in a Russian context. It just it it did for me slightly cross into that kind of exoticism thing, rather than you know it just felt like an addition for the sake of it, rather than actually there being any value to it being set in the far east of Russia. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because I felt like I didn't learn a thing about Russia. No, not a thing. I didn't know there's nothing about it that that was relevant well no that's probably the wrong way to put it not that it wasn't relevant to their lives but there was nothing that was like you said different to you, you could you could have set it on north Yorkshire moors yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely you could have done i didn't feel there was nothing i didn't feel like i learned anything about the indigenous cultures that they are referring to and I think the point that Sarah Moss was making in her review that I agree with is that with nothing about how those cultures might react to an event such as this. You know, there is an assumption that everyone would react the way that a white Westerner would react to something. You know, there's no possibility that anything could be different. Um, so yeah it was just there was it just felt like a setting for the sake of it yeah and that thing when you talk about where it sent like nothing would be different but this is set in Putin's Russia so yeah. of be different. and of course like you know I mean there's the, the minute I say his name I'm just like toxic masculinity <laughs> like you know yeah I'm sure there's loads of, and, and it made me think actually when I when I was reading it I think I read the first four chapters sort of straight through and then mm. I put it down and when I went back to it I started to wonder about 
Russian writers, actually, modern Russian writers, because I'm not sure I've read any. Mm. I've read I've read Tolstoy and I've read Dostoevsky. Please tell me he's Russian now, I've said that. Yes, yes, he's definitely <laughs> Russian. But I don't think I've read anything current. So No, I don't think I have, actually. I think the, the sort of the most recent Russian writer I've read is probably, like, Bulgakov, like the Master and the Margarita, and that's what Stalinism and you know. I've read that one as well. I've forgotten about that one because I don't like it, which is an unpopular opinion. So I'll keep quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I read Tolstoy. I read uh, Anna Karenina for the first time fairly recently and loved it because it's just a massive soap opera. Yeah. Um, but I did feel like I was in Russia. I didn't feel like I was in London. You know what I mean? So yeah. But yes, yes, I I wanted to read some contemporary. I wanted to read a contemporary female Russian writer. Instead. Oh, I'll tell you who I've read. Sorry, that's just reminds me. I've read Ludmilla uh, Petrovskaya, who writes short stories that are out in Penguin Modern Classics. I mean, even then, they're not you know like current like now because of modern classics, but they are more they are more recent. And I do really recommend. Sorry, I just cut in there, but she just popped into my head. Um, there's a collection of short stories it's got the most amazing title there once lived a girl who seduced her sister's husband and he hanged himself love stories um and there's another one there once lived a woman who tried to kill her neighbor's baby scary fairy tales which i've not <laughs> read and i do want to read um and then there's another one called there once lived a mother who lived who loved her children until they moved back in three novellas <laughs> Uh, so I, yeah, Ludmila Petrusevskaya. Sorry, I mispronounced it the first time. Um, yeah, I I strongly recommend. I've only read um, There Once Lived a Girl Who Seduced Her Sister's Husband and He Hanged Himself. <laughs> Love stories. Um, <laughs> but I do want to read the rest. Sorry, that was a diversion. No, that's all right. I'm enjoying the titles already. Um, <laughs> yes, anyway, so more Russian literature at some point. Perhaps we should do something next series. Maybe we should. If there's anyone, if any of our loyal listeners have any contemporary Russian or um, former Soviet countries recommendations, uh, I thought Tilted Access published some like Uzbek and stuff, don't they? I was just about to say, I feel like there's a Ukrainian author. We're just wildly naming countries at this point. No, because also when I said, when I thought I haven't read any Russian authors, I'm like, surely Tilted Access will publish someone, but then I couldn't think of anyone. But like, maybe I should just look at the books that I that I get as part of my subscription that then sit on the shelf until I decide we're doing them on the podcast, so I'll read them. Anyway, that's my issue. They want a spreadsheet. Um... Back to this period of, I disagree with you actually about the first chapter being the best one. So I thought there were two others. And for me, they were the two chapters that worked on their own. So there's one that's a story about a couple who haven't been together very long. And he's talking of like inadequate men. He's fucking useless, um, but thinks he's great. He's like, he's going to get promoted and he's going to be the big guy at the Institute and all of this. Um, and they get to where they're camping and he's forgotten the tent. So they have to sleep in the car. Uh, yes 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 that is good which turns out to be a good move because there's an incident with a bear um <laughs> and I did enjoy later on so the one thing that I did enjoy later about that is that the one of his colleagues who actually introduced them turns up later because she's the only witness to the two young girls being kidnapped so she gets her own very short chapter 
later on, but she does say that like they're introduced at this dinner at her house. Um, and if she'd known they were going to get together, she would have poisoned their food. <laughs> and I was like, genius. Um, she, knows, she knows he's an idiot. And what on earth is this like smart woman doing with her? But, you know, we've all been there. Um, <laughs> and, and the other one was um, there's a woman called Ramira, who the her chapter is told on the anniversary of her husband's death um 30 years previously and she has since remarried to a guy called a tomb um and he goes out um his job is a rescue worker so he's out in the wilds rescuing someone and i'm not going to give that away but you can probably work it out yourself <laughs> from what i've just told you but they were the two chapters for me that worked as contained chapters and i think and they like what you know going back to what you said about she can write because she can because those are two really good short stories mm. and part of my frustration with this was it neither works as a collection of linked short stories nor as a novel it doesn't know what it is I think mm. problem for me and I, yeah and I just got increasingly frustrated at having these characters and stories chucked in that didn't seem to be adding anything yeah, uh, at the front of the book, there's a, a list of principal characters, which felt, again, it felt to me like the apparatus of this great Russian novel. Um, and I'm, as I said, I'm the same as you. I, you know, I've read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And they all have these kind of large you know, cast of characters listed at the front, which is incredibly useful. Um, this is where I get to show off and say that I've read War and Peace. Um, but, you know, kind of go back and, um, you know, checking like, oh, God, I can't remember who that is. And, you know, everyone's got five names and all that sort of stuff. Where I, I did wonder whether it was a conscious thing to try and recreate that sort of feeling by having this principal character list. That said, I did have to keep going back to it because I kind of kept forgetting how everyone was interconnected which annoyed me because I felt like I shouldn't have to keep going back to the principal the, yeah. the kind of cast list as often as I was for a book that actually isn't that long we're not talking like a 900 page you know war and peace here this is it's it's sub 300 pages I think just about uh yeah 256 pages um I shouldn't need to go back to the cast list that often in in that number of pages I felt like and being charitable I was wondering whether it was a kind of purposeful thing to yes to first sort of recreate the kind of apparatus of the you know big American big Russian um classics but also whether it was an attempt at sort of showing the claustrophobia of these very you know kind of very close-knit um remote communities or actually whether it was she just couldn't quite handle her own material. And if I'm being uncharitable, I feel like it might be more the latter than the former. Well, two things for me. I hate those lists at the beginning. I hate them. <laughs> and I, don't, I never refer back to them unless I absolutely have to because something's really annoying me. I never refer back to them. Even when I read Anna Karenina, I didn't look back. I'm like, if I don't know who they are, then you're not doing your job properly. Like, I shouldn't have to be looking up who someone is. Unless it's like, I get... So one of the things this reminded me of that I think was way better done was the show by Sarah Taylor which was shortlisted for the women's prize I can't remember what year but it must be about 2016 I think 
and what Sarah Taylor does in that book is she tells interlinked short stories all set on a peninsula in America. I can't remember whereabouts. Apologies, Sarah Taylor. Um, but she moves from, I think it's current day, and it starts with two little kids who were in a shop and there's an incident with a gun and moves through into the future. Oh, she does go, I think it might go back and forth because there's some historical bits. But, and there is, so in the front of that, there is a like family tree, which I'm sort of like, fair enough because it's moving through time. So there might be bits where you go, oh yeah, who is that related to again? If you're not quite sure, which I'm like fine in that instance. But if it's one where it's all set at the same time and you can't work out who's, who's connected to who, then I'd, for me, the writer's not doing their job. Um, and the other thing was, if, if the idea is that it's meant to be claustrophobic, I didn't actually feel like it was that claustrophobic. There was kind of a group of people who were really irritating, who were all dating each other, basically. <laughs> so that there were maybe like four or five who were the younger ones. They were all sort of a bit interlinked and still being idiots about, you know, running off when there's a problem and then hooking up with an ex and la la la, all that. Not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Really leave it alone. <laughs> um, yeah, and they were a bit claustrophobic, but in that sort of late teens, early 20s way, when you're going back home, even though you've all sort of left and you're not quite set off mm. on your like proper journeys, but in terms of the rest, didn't feel that claustrophobic to me, but maybe that's just me. Um, there are points at which I, I I don't mean claustrophobic in the sense of the it certainly wasn't a locked room. Do you know what I mean? In um, the sense of people being related and in each other's business. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know whether that because I I've always hated that idea of everyone sort of knowing everyone's like oh she saw she wore red on a Thursday what does that mean um you know so I don't know whether I was particularly sensitive to that I did get flashes of that I did feel like there was a bit like can everyone just go away <laughs> don't want you to know um I mean there was a sense yeah of, sorry no I go. there was a sense of that with earlier because there was this whole thing about uh, apparently being a whore wasn't there she left because she was like sleeping with loads of people and you're like hmm patriarchy <laughs> in two senses that if she was so what but also is that the reason that she's disappeared and also it's the reason that none of you are bothering to look for her yeah yeah exactly and there's the, the nearly the last chapter the, the last kind of full chapter because there's a very short bit at the end um there is that there's a kind of confrontation around that around you know what you believed happened to this character or or, or not and see so the thing when I was because I did choose this book as you have alluded to, um, and I feel like I'll never forget now. Um, it, <laughs> the thing, the thing that made me want to read this book in the first place was just lots of people everywhere I could have saw it mentioned talked about like oh my god the ending the ending is just like it will shake you will be shook by the ending you'll want to immediately close the book and go straight back to the beginning and see how it was done and I was like yes I'm so ready for that you know um but I did not feel like that at all and actually that that chapter where there's sort of the revelation you kind of figure out what's happened um just felt like a bit of a damp squib really I'm going to spoil the revelation a little bit for some people because I tweeted um, at the end of last week about watching um, 
Mary's town and you took the piss out of me being late to it. Yeah, yeah, obviously. It was an open door, like, I just, you know. I deliberately did not write, I was late to it. Anyway, (laughs) and then you swooped in. (laughs) It was spoiling all my fun this week. Um, But... What this does, what the, this novel does at the end, Mayor of Easttown does in the middle of the series. Right. And so, like reading this. So I'm I'm only halfway through. I'm at the revelation at this at this point. So reading it alongside watching that, it's totally pales in comparison to, to what that series is doing. Mm. And again, it's about, you know, um, it's about young girls who were working as escorts. Um it were then being kidnapped and you know so it's got all these similarities with it and it's also got Kate Winslet looking rough which is brilliant she's so good at it apart from when she goes on a date right with I'm off on a tangent now but she goes on a date with Guy Pierce's character who's a writer whose character name I can't remember and she gets dolled up for it and even with like six inch black roots <laughs> she still looks really hot when she gets dolled up and I'm like no no <laughs> But she is like proper, she's dressed in like, you know, jeans and a t-shirt and and is yet yeah, just amazing in it in terms of she she's she fully embraces it and doesn't give a shit about what mm. she looks like or you know, portrays anyway. I'm a fun one. Watch Mary Vista. <laughs> That's my recommendation. Do that instead of reading Disappearing Earth. There right, go. so go watch the word Mayor of East Town and read Ludmilla yes. Patrick. Petruskovskaya, God, I've mangled that again. Um, Positive out of this. Oh, <laughs> recommendations for other things we could do instead. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, sorry about that. It's all right. It's all right. Better luck next time. Can't wait till I choose a dud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've chosen a dud. What did you choose that was a dud? I don't know, did I? remember selective memory for this yeah i'll go back and like forensically check you'll get a text at three in the morning going i knew you'd chosen one um but next week (laughs) the book i've chosen for next week holiday rachel's holiday there you go yeah that was a bit of a dud wasn't it anyway (laughs) (laughs) not the sales figures are bothered by it's fine um the book I have chosen for mm-hmm. next week, uh, which I hope uh, will not be a dud, is Braised Pork by Anne Yu, um, which uh, was published by Harbel Secker in 2020, very beginning of 2020. Um, and the other book we're looking at, uh, which we both wanted to read, um, I think you originally um suggested it but it was very much on my radar was I am not Sydney Poitier by Percival Everett which is published by Influx um, which was originally published in 2009 and was reissued a couple of years ago so better luck next week <laughs> looking forward everyone to should that. go and read Girl Waits with Gun yes well um, you could spend time reading the like seven books of that yeah 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 i'm off to see if i can track down book two now yeah if, if you were if you were feeling up for it you could crack through them in a week i reckon i reckon yeah you could if you could just like if you had like a week off and you know nothing else to do i reckon that would be a pretty jolly week to yourself actually 
Yeah. You'd come out thinking you're a pigeon, obviously. <laughs> You'd come out thinking you were a northern bisexual pigeon fancier. Yep. Yeah. And if that's not a good time, I just, I don't know what to tell you. They should get me right in Coronation Street, honestly. <laughs> I didn't know how many bisexual pigeon fancies there were in, in, in um, Coronation Street these days. Well, you know how people like rewrite their characters with all this? You know, like there's a new Buzz Lightyear and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I reckon I could rewrite Jack Duckworth. I'm going to, I'm going to really. Is this, is this Jack Duckworth fanfic? <laughs> This is in my head. <laughs> you know that will exist somewhere on the internet, right? Oh, no, Christy, we're not going to look into that. <laughs> need to sleep. <laughs> right. On that note. In the meantime, you can subscribe to Late to It wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and you can follow me and Kirsty on Twitter for more random conversations that may or may not be about books. Um, I am at Naomi Frisbee and Kirsty is at the other Kirsty. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.